Hello, and welcome to the podcast from Neighborhood Church. This message titled, Celebrate His Invitation, was given by Larry Volt and was the first in our series, Pray This Way. Well, listen, if you haven't already done so, find your sermon outline, and let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew, please. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. You'll find that on page 1504 if you're using that book rack Bible. Everybody's Bible open. Everybody needs to get their eyes on this text today. So for the last couple of months, I've been studying for this new series, and I'm really excited about it. We're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer for the next seven weeks. It's an amazing prayer. It's the most popular prayer, most familiar prayer that we find in Scripture. Who hasn't heard of the Lord's Prayer? (laughs) Everybody's heard of the Lord's Prayer. Most of us know it as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, More rightfully, it probably should be called the Disciples' Prayer because as far as we know, Jesus wouldn't have prayed this prayer. He wouldn't have asked that his sins be forgiven as he'd forgiven others. And yet this was the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. For those of you that have a Catholic background, you know this prayer as the Our Father. It's all captured in that beautiful picture of coming to our Father. It's an amazing prayer. I had a school friend in high school that was a Catholic, and in in the little Baptist church that I was raised in across the bay, we prayed this prayer every Sunday as part of our liturgy, and we prayed it according to Matthew's account using the word debtors, and when I would go to his church, Catholic church, uh, they would pray it in the mass, they would come to that section and use trespasses, and that always goofed me up, it got real messy in there. Sometimes as a pastor, I've led people from all different backgrounds, you know, Catholic, Protestant, whatever, in this prayer, and you get to that center section where you're talking about debts and debtors and trespasses, and it's, it's real messy right in there. But it's okay. It really says the same thing. We're going to talk about the nuances and the different words that are used. We won't get to that today, but it's fascinating. It's an amazing prayer. Early Christians were taught to pray this prayer three times a day. And to always pray it in the liturgy of their services, their worship services. There's something about this prayer. Someone has said that the whole gospel is contained in the prayer the Lord taught his disciples. An amazing prayer. Who doesn't know the Lord's prayer? But do we really know what it means? Do we really know what Jesus was teaching his disciples? And frankly, a lot of us are a little nervous about prayer. In fact, we don't feel real confident. It's not a discipline that many of us can say we've really got down. We've all got things to learn about prayer. I do, so do you. I thought about this series and how important it is because many of us kind of think that others should be the prayer warriors and not ourselves. So we let others pray. We let pastors, we let group leaders, we let elders and teachers and small group leaders. Those are the people that should pray. In fact, if I'm ever in a group of people and there's gonna be prayer there's probably a pretty good shot someone's going to say, Pastor Larry, why don't you pray? Why is that? We're all invited into this beautiful experience in prayer. Why is the pastor always called on to pray? It's an interesting question. Sometimes people think only the pastor gets through to God. You know, personally, and I know we don't believe that, but that's kind of egregious to hear as a pastor. You know, because everyone has access. Uh, Hebrews 4.16 says that we should have confidence to come into the throne room of God. But I know that's how we feel. That's how we think. We think the pastor should pray because the pastor is the one that gets through. That's, I know at Neighborhood we don't really follow that. But there's a lot of people that do. A lot of people that believe that to be the case. And some of us would be petrified if we were called upon to pray publicly. Ooh, what would that be like? I remember the story. It's a cute story. Ken Davis tells this story and 
John Ortberg in his book writes about this story and uh, he, he tells the story about the famous coach of the Chicago Bears, Mike Ditka, who in a pregame pep talk looked over at, this is back in the 80s, some of you will remember the big William Refrigerator Perry, you remember him? 6'2", 382 pounds, you know why they called him the fridge? And Ditka looked at him as he began his pep talk, he says, at the end I want you to lead our team in the Lord's Prayer. And the fridge got a little nervous. Everybody could see it, sense it in the room. And Jim McMahon, who was the quarterback at the time, nudged his buddy next to him and said, I'll bet you 50 bucks he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. Tension in the room. Ditka finishes his speech and he looks at at the fridge and he says, all right, you're up. He bows his head. Everyone's pensively waiting. And he starts out, now I lay me down to sleep. That's actually not the funny part of the story. Jim McMahon said to his buddy, I thought for sure he didn't know the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) Now, (laughs) if it isn't praying publicly, our fear is praying ineffectively. Many of us struggle with knowing how to pray. For some reason, for a lot of us, talking to God is intimidating. I mean, can we just tell him what's on our heart? Are we asking for the right things? Is prayer a formula that if I just get it down right, I'm going to get what I want? That's what a lot of people wonder about when it comes to prayer. Is prayer a magic potion that I use? Is it like sticking money in a vending machine, pulling the right button, and out comes what I'm asking for? Is that what prayer is about? Well, that's why we're doing this series. We want to dig deep into what prayer is about. And I couldn't think of a better place than to go right to the source where Jesus said, this is how we should pray. This is what we should pray. This, when we pray, we should pray this way so that we can have confidence to approach the throne of grace that we might find mercy and help in our time of need, Hebrews 4.16. Or like in Romans 8.26 and following where it says that even though we don't always know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us along with our prayers according to the will of God. Aren't you glad? So we want to deepen our conviction that God invites us to pray and he loves it when we we, we do. That's the whole point of this series. Seven beautiful weeks in this Lord's Prayer. And we all know people that need this series and I hope you'll invite them to come. And people from all kinds of backgrounds because this is a familiar text. I'm going to be preaching on a text that most of us know by heart. But do we really know what it means? Best place to start is right here with the Lord's Prayer. So with that in mind, let's look at the text. Now, just to keep it from being messy, let's do this out loud. Let's say the Lord's Prayer as recorded here in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9, where Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Come on, let's go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. All right, now some of your translations might have a little doxology in there, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Uh, The earliest manuscripts do not have that phrase. And so just to stay true to the best manuscript evidence, um, it would appear that what we have here in Matthew's version And the only other version is in the book of Luke, and he doesn't include the uh, doxology either. The doxology was added probably later, uh, certainly in 2nd and 3rd century uh, manuscripts, but not in the earliest manuscripts. And so we we are just taking that 
uh, as it is. A couple other observations that you'll notice here. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with praying the doxology. It's very much like David's prayer in 1 Chronicles 29. You can look at that where he calls out to God after the building or in the promise of building of the temple and he says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. It's pretty much verbatim. And so there's nothing wrong with praying the doxology. It's a beautiful end to a prayer like the Lord's Prayer, but it's just not in the best manuscripts and so we're just gonna keep it at verse 13. Notice also about this prayer that uh, the prayer begins with our focus on God. It's his name, his kingdom, and his will that ought to consume our lives. Before we ever get to our needs, we should be consumed with who God is, his, his name, his will, his kingdom. Those are the things that should occupy our minds. Then we get to our needs, our bread, our forgiveness, our spiritual protection. Notice also that the pronouns are plural. It's not my Father in heaven, but our Father in heaven. Not give me my daily bread, but give us our daily bread. This is a prayer of community. It's a prayer that reminds us that we pray this in solidarity with the body of Christ. And so when we pray this prayer, we're, we're thinking, we're conscious of the fact that while I'm an individual before God, I'm not alone, and I'm, I'm sharing in, in this with others. All right, so with that as a background, the, the opening, this preview message of the Lord's Prayer today is it was what I see as a grand, a grand invitation and I want you to celebrate that invitation today. And the way you're going to do that is you're going to understand four meanings of this phrase, verse 9a, this little phrase, this then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. That's where we start. There's no petition here. It's just the way we should begin our prayer. And I see this as a grand invitation. And, and here's how we're going to break it down. I see in this opening, this opening phrase, I see that there's a word of instruction. Would you write that down? There's a word of instruction. And the instruction is by comparison that introduces this prayer. Notice in verse 5 of the text, he's contrasting, Jesus is contrasting that when we pray, we should not be like the hypocrites who love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. This is not how to pray, Matthew's version tells us. We should not pray to be noticed. Prayer is not an academy award. It's not performing. And that's why a lot of us are very quiet when it comes to prayer because we don't want to be outdone by the guy next to us praying. We don't want to sound silly or foolish. And we forget that God's invited us into this community with him and so yet we're so afraid we, we just think it's for the professionals and that's wrong. And by the way, just thinking on this a little longer, in Luke's rendition, Luke chapter 11, we have the only other place in the Gospels where the Lord's Prayer, and it's a shorter version in Luke's passage, and we'll get to this in a few weeks. I'll tell you why the passages are a little different, why the nuances are a little different. You'll see some change there. But in Luke's passage, it comes on the heels of Jesus' disciples asking him, Lord, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray. And why was it that the disciples of Jesus wanted them to be taught wanted Jesus to teach them about prayer, we don't know. Maybe they saw the sheer power and efficacy of Jesus' prayer, and that's why they said, Lord, teach us to pray that way. We, we want to experience what you've experienced in prayer. They've seen the miracles. They saw what Jesus did. They saw the transformational things that took place, and no doubt they wanted to have what Jesus had. I'm not talking about in the sensational side of that, but I'm just saying they saw what prayer did in Jesus' life. Maybe that's what they saw for themselves. But I think if the bottom line were told, all of us would love to know a little bit more as to how to pray, and there's no one better to teach us than Jesus. Now back here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, when we read there in verse 9, this then is how you should pray. Notice, if you're taking notes, that this is, uh, this is uh, not 
It says, notice that Jesus doesn't say, this then is what you should pray. So, in other words, for some of us that love to see the Lord's Prayer as just something we recite everywhere we go, get in mind here that Jesus didn't say, this is what you should pray. He said, this is what? How you should pray. So we see the prayer the Lord taught us as a template, as a model for prayer. Now, is there anything wrong with reciting it? Absolutely not. But if we're not careful we end up reciting the Lord's Prayer and not thinking about what it means. And if that's where we are or if we've ever been there, we might come off having an experience like this. Our Father, who art in Yes. Don't interrupt, I'm praying. But you called me. Called you. I didn't call you. I was praying. Our Father, who art in heaven. There. You did it again. Did what? Called me. You said, Our Father, who art in heaven. Here I am. What's on your mind? Uh, <laughs> um, I didn't really mean anything by it. I was just um, saying my prayers, you know. Uh, I like to say the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it makes me feel good. It's like getting a, a job done. All right. Go on. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hold it. What do you mean by that? By what? By hallowed be thy name. It means... It means... Good grief. I don't know what it means. It's just at the end of the prayer. That's the, uh, by the way, what does it mean exactly? It means honored, holy, wonderful. Ah, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I never thought about what Hollywood meant before. Our Father, right in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you really mean that? Well, of course. Why not? What are you going to do about it? Do? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, I, I really think it would be great if you just got a lot more control down here like you've got up there. Have I got control of you? Well, I go to church. That isn't what I asked you. What about that bad temper? You've really got a problem there, you know. Hey, stop picking on me, man. I'm not any different than the hypocrites down at the church. Excuse me, but I thought you were praying for my will to be done. If that is to happen, it will have to start with the ones who are praying for it, like you, for example. I know you're right, huh? I guess I got some hang-ups. Well, now that you mention it, I, I can think of some others. <laughs> <laughs> so could I. <laughs> I mean, I never really thought about it before. I just, you know, I'd like to cut some of those things out of my life. I, I'd like to know what I could do to be free. Good. Now we're getting somewhere. We'll work together, you and I. Some real victories can be won. I am proud of you. <laughs> Great. Um, Look, Lord, we've got to move this along. This is taking a lot longer than it usually <laughs> takes. Um, give us this day our daily bread. You need to cut out the bread. You're a little overweight as it is. Hey, what is this? Look, here I am. I'm just doing my, my religious duty, right? And you're all breaking in and reminding me of my faults. Praying is a dangerous thing. You could end up changed, you know. That's what I'm trying to bring across to you. You called me, and here I am. 
It's too late to stop now. Keep on praying. I'm interested in the next part of your prayer. <laughs> well, go on. Got him scared. Scared of what? Well, I know what you're going to say. Try me and see. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. What about Peter Brown? See, I knew you were going to bring him up. <laughs> Why? Lord, look, he told all these lies about me, and he cheated me out of some money. I swear I'm going to get even with him. But your prayer, what about your prayer? Well, I didn't mean it. <laughs> well, at least you're honest. It's not much fun carrying around that load of bitterness inside, is it? No. It would be better when I get even. You won't feel any better. You'll feel worse. Revenge isn't sweet. Think of how unhappy you really are. But I'll change all that. Will? How? Forgive Peter. Then I'll forgive you. Then the hate and sin will be Peter's problem and not yours. Oh, you may lose the money, but you will have settled your heart. Uh, I know if I think deep enough about it, you're right. It's the right thing to do. Lord, thank you for helping me work through this. And lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Wouldn't it be great if the Lord interrupted us in our prayers? And sometimes he does that. That's what he wants to do. I mean, if we're really thinking about what we're praying for, this, this prayer is a transformational prayer. It changes everything in our lives. And we're invited. That's, that's the beauty of this invitation. We should celebrate it. And we see it first in this word of instruction. This, then, is how you should pray. There's, a, there's also a word, notice, not only a word of instruction, but there's also a word of invitation here. And of course, that's the whole point of this message. But I want to zero in on it just for a minute. And I see this invitation really glaring in the word Father. And Jesus said, this is how you should pray, our Father. I want to emphasize the word Father for just a moment. The title Father captures three important themes. If you're taking notes, one theme is admiration captured in the term father, our admiration to him. All through the Old Testament, God is addressed, wherever he's addressed, there's never a direct inference as if we would call him father. In fact, in the Hebrew mind, you couldn't even say the name of God. Remember, remember Pastor Paul alluded to it earlier, when Moses was saying to God, who, who, who am I going to say sent me to tell you this stuff? Remember when he was going to be the Lord's deliverer, the deliverer of God's people? And God said to him in Exodus 3.14, he said, tell them this, I am that I am has sent you to them. I am that I am. God is giving Moses the Hebrew verb to be. That's all that word is. Over the centuries, God's people, the Hebrew people, they couldn't even pronounce that word. It's four Hebrew consonants, makes up the verb to be. And from that word, we get the word Yahweh or Jehovah. 
the reminder to us that God is the God over his covenant people, but the title of God all through the Old Testament are majestic, transcendent names. Do you understand what the word transcendence means? It means other than. God is other than us, right? The greatest revelation you'll ever come to is that there is one God and you are not him. <laughs> there is one God and you are not him. He is other than. He is other than any humanity or all combined humanity. There is only one God. In the book of Isaiah, we could go through so many beautiful scriptures that identify that God is transcendent. He is above, over, all, sovereign, creator, Lord, healer, protector, provider, judge. Those are the titles that we're used to seeing. And the, and the Hebrew people, the priest could only utter his name as he went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement couldn't even speak the name of God. So when Jesus steps up to his Jewish disciples and he says, this then is how you should pray. Start this way. Our Father. Father? That was scandalous to the audience that Jesus taught this prayer, even to his own disciples. Father? Are you kidding me? Frankly, if we, the Protestant church, in this modern day that we're living in, if we had a better understanding of transcendence, this would blow our minds too. But we're so familiar with God, this just seems to make sense to us. Never forget, even though God wants to be known as familiar to us, he is not our equal. He is sovereign king. And yet he invites us. He says, this is how you should pray. Come to me asking, Father, Father. There's a beautiful picture of, of admiration here in this point. And by the way, the Greek word is pater. Jesus would have spoken, his fluent tongue was Aramaic. And... Uh, and the Aramaic word is Abba. And you know, you've read that in Scripture. When Jesus prayed, even in his high priestly prayer and other places in, in the New Testament, the word Abba is used. This would have been Jesus' reference to his Father. The word Abba is an even more enduring ter endearing term. It's, more like, it's like Daddy or Papa or Pops. It's a, it's a familiar endearing term. When my little girls were young, uh, they're grown up now, I've got adult children, but they always called me daddy and papa and pops. And they still do. That's their endearing term. I've got a 27-year-old, daddy, how are you? Daddy, daddy, daddy. It's a familiar term. They don't ever say father. Now, and I'm not minimizing the beautiful word father, but why would the Greek text, why would in the language that the New Testament was written in, why would not Abba be inserted there? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of suggestions about that. One would likely be, but before we get to that, let me just hold on here. When you think about how father is a beautiful picture, I know right now some of you are thinking, but wait a minute, I had a horrible father. When I think of God as my father, that stinks because my dad was a terrible father. And some of us in a crowd this size, some of us horrible situations with our fathers. If you're in Matthew 6, just go over one page to Matthew 7. Maybe this will help you, those of you that have that background. Matthew 7, 11, Jesus, in the context of prayer, said, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You know what Jesus is doing there? He's referring to the fact that our Father, no matter what our earthly fathers have been, and they're evil, Jesus said they're evil, and some of them are very evil. <laughs> he said, but you have a Father in heaven that is perfect, 
perfect in nature, never had made a mistake, never would do anything to harm you as his child. And so if you've had a bad father experience, you've got to make the connection that what Jesus is talking about here is not your earthly father. He's talking about a father of perfection to which every earthly father should target and direct his life. But we're going to fall miserably short and some for reasons that we don't have time to go into today um, fall culpably short in the terms of even bringing destruction and damage into people's lives. So this is, this is a scandalous term Jesus is giving, but I see it in admiration. I see Jesus giving us permission to use this, this word father. And now let me give you a reason why in the New Testament the word is pater, not Abba, right here in this place. Because I think not only is admiration in view here, but I think adoption is in view here. Write that down. Adoption is captured in the title father. Did you know that in the Greco-Roman world, the father had the right to legal adoption. It had to be the father that filled out the papers, signed the papers, and would go to the court of law and say, I'm adopting this child. This is the Greco-Roman world. And remember, the New Testament was written in the Greco-Roman world. All rights and privileges of one born by natural means into a family was transmuted into the life of an adopted person legally. So if you were adopted, you had every right every legal permission that one born of natural means was. And this is an important distinction. Might it be that Jesus was causing us to realize that when we become adopted into his family, and oh, by the way, you know you have to be adopted into the family of God, right? That you're not born naturally into the family of God? Just because your parents are Christians doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because your grandparents were Christians doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Everybody comes to faith by the grace of God in their own hearts, realizing that they need a Savior, they need as their sins to be forgiven, and they come by faith to the one who offers them life. And may, might it have been that in this text we have a picture of the fact that our adoption makes us as complete as one born of natural descent? I wonder if Paul had that in mind in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive, look at this, the full rights as sons. It's beautiful. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Aramaic, Father, Pater, one who has been given the right as sons. So you are no longer a slave but a son and since you are a son God has made you an heir. Beautiful picture. It's also in Romans 8, 15 through 17. Don't you love this? Have you been adopted into God's family? And if you have by faith then you have the full rights as sons. When you pray, Jesus said pray this way, our Father in heaven. There's a third thing I see quickly. I see not only admiration for the Father, I see adoption by the Father. I also see allegiance to the Father, captured in this picture of Father. I didn't know this until digging a little deeper into the Greco-Roman culture, that in the Roman world of Jesus' day, the emperor, and you remember it was Caesar Augustus when Jesus was born, it was Tiberius when Jesus lived and died, the emperor was known among the people as the great father of the people. And both he and the people of Rome reveled in this distinction. He was the great father of the people. So, one researcher, Robert Cornwall, suggests that perhaps in this reference to father, 
Jesus was offering the possibility of a little subversiveness here. As if to call out to his disciples to examine as to where their true allegiance was. Is it to Rome and the emperor or is it to God who is the king of the kingdom? I think that's a timely reminder to us today. We live in a democratic or as some have said a constituted republic. We pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. We've got all kinds of allegiances. But this prayer will succinctly bring you to your knees in asking you where your true allegiance is. Is your allegiance to the God of the kingdom, the king of the kingdom? Or is it to a number of things and God just happens to fit in somewhere there? Maybe Jesus was offering a little bit of subversiveness there. Not in a way to rebel against Rome, but to ask his disciples, where is your allegiance really found? It's a timely question for us today. So in this word, this beginning opening, this preview Sunday, we see a word of instruction. This is how we should pray. A word of invitation, capsulated in this term father. But I also see there a word of identification. A word of identification. And I see that in the pronoun our. And I pointed out earlier in this message that our is, is a, a, it's in the plural, of course. In the Greek language, the subject stands at the front of the sentence, so it literally reads, the Father of us in the heavens. That's the way it reads in the Greek language. And this sounds a little awkward in English, and so we just say, our Father who is in heaven. But worth noting, as I mentioned at the top of the message, that nothing in this prayer promotes individuality. God is personal, but that doesn't mean that we should consider ourselves as merely individual when we come to him. God wants us to see at the outset of this prayer that we have a connection with God which results in a connection with others. In a sense, we come to understand in this prayer that Jesus is our brother because God is his father and so he's our father too. Does that make sense? So we have a connection with our brother Jesus. Now, when I say that, don't consider Jesus on equal par with you. He's not. He's God. He's sovereign God in the form of a human body. But this is when he comes as a human, we recognize this brother sense, that we are in connection, that there's this hour. And if if Jesus would pray Abba to his father, and he's inviting us to say Father, then he's inviting us to have the same familial relationship that he shares with his heavenly father. And I think that that is nothing short of beautiful. I think that that's a privilege that many of us have, have skated over so quickly that we, we forget. Some of you say, well, wait a minute, isn't God everyone's father? Well, yes and no. He is the father over all of his creation, the Bible says, but not in the sense of over our adoption as his children. Those who are God's children by adoption have come by faith in him, not by their own descent, not by being religious, not by carrying out the works of the law. And so, yes, God is the Father over all creation, but he is only the Father over those who have personally come to receive the gift of life in Jesus Christ. So here's my question to you. Have you done that? Has God's grace illuminated for you your need to receive his grace today? And if you never have, then today's a beautiful day to start. This is what this prayer invites you to do. It invites you to come in Early Christians were told they couldn't pray this prayer until they had confirmed their testimony in the waters of baptism. This is how serious the early church took this prayer. 
And in a sense, there's no way to pray this prayer with integrity unless you really know the one who has created you and given you life. And so until you come to that place of giving your life to Jesus Christ, you really can't pray this prayer with integrity. So in pointing out the pronoun our, the Spirit of God has has room to ask us, have we made our peace with God? Is God our Heavenly Father? And if He is, then do we share with each other's lives and with the Lord Jesus Himself? And the answer to that is yes. It's not just me and God. It's not just I don't need church, I don't need fellowship, I don't need community. We do because we pray our Father. That's why we're big into taking the next step of worship into community. I see a word of instruction, a word of invitation, a word of identification. Lastly, finally, I see a word of inspiration. And I see that in this little, what looks like an addendum, but it's really the focus of where this prayer is going. Our Father in heaven, in heaven. What I'm getting at here is the motivation behind why we pray and why we should pray and why we should be motivated to pray. The Greek word for heaven is uranos. It's the word that we get to describe the planet Uranus or Uranus or however you say that. You have to be careful on how you pronounce that word. I can remember astronomy classes in college where we had a lot of fun with that. But anyway, the word Uranus in the Greek language is in the plural. It's not singular. So the big question is, when Jesus invited us to pray this way, was he inviting us into seeing the address of where God lives or was there something else? I read some some commentators that said that this is, in a way, Jesus putting us in our place. When we pray, we should pray, our Father who is in heaven. In other words, God's in heaven and we're down here. Big distance between us. I can't argue with the fact that there's a great distance between the transcendence of God and and our humanity. But I don't see Jesus invoking distance as his point here. I don't think that would be very motivating. Do you? I mean, after all, come to God because he's a billion miles away and you're down here in this little scrappy planet called the earth. I I don't see that as highly motivational. I think what Jesus was inviting his disciples into was when he used the word Uranus, which is the the Greek word which is in the plural, plural, which tells us that it's the heavens or could not only include the starry host we see on a dark night, but the actual atmosphere that surrounds the earth. Might it be that Jesus was saying when you pray, you should pray this way, knowing that when you pray, God is as close to you as the air you breathe. I love that. I think that's more along the lines of what Jesus would be saying here. I don't think he's going after an address. I think he's going after accessibility. I think he's inviting us into the presence of God where every Christian who knows Christ, whether you're one day old or 50 years old in Christ or 100 years old in Christ, if you're that old, if you possibly could be, that you have the same access. Pastors don't have more access than you. Elders don't have more access than you. You have equal access because the spirit of the living Christ is in you. And when you pray, you pray to the Father who is in the heavens, who is as close to you as the air you breathe. Psalm 139, David writes, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. You can never get away from where God is. Wherever you are, there he is also. By the way, that's not Eastern pantheism. That's not saying that God is in everything. It means that God is omnipresent. It means that you can never find a place where God is not there. 
And so when you're in your trial at work or when you're driving down the street, you don't have to come to a location to pray. You don't have to come light a candle to pray. And nothing wrong if that's part of your, if that's what you want to do. I'm just saying you don't need that to get a location to where God is. God is ever present when we call to him. You know the Hebrew way of thinking about approaching God was this. If, if God could hear us, he will answer us. That's the way the Hebrews thought about prayer. If God could hear us, he will answer us. Say it with me. If God will hear us, he will answer us. The Shema in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's the Shema. The word Shema means to hear. If God can hear us, he will answer us. So I wonder if John had that in his mind when he penned those beautiful words in 1 John 5, 14, and 15. Read them with me. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Isn't that beautiful? That's nothing short of what the Hebrews' concept of prayer was. If God will hear us, he will answer us. And guess what? New Testament teaching. He hears us. He hears us. You see this as a beautiful, grand invitation. Jesus said, when you pray, you should pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven. And then we start in six beautiful, glorious petitions that you won't want to miss. I see a word of instruction, a word of invitation, a word of identification, and a word of inspiration. Let's go to the Lord right now. Lord Jesus, thank you for teaching us to pray. And Lord, we're here, we're saying, Lord, teach us to pray. And thank you that we have a beautiful, credible source, Scripture, where we don't have to have any guess factor, Lord. If we, if we understand the meaning of this text, the meaning of this prayer, it could change our lives forever. And Lord, I believe you brought someone to this service Maybe by your grace you would have revealed to them that it starts with knowing you. And I pray by your grace you would give them the faith to believe right now and be saved. And I'm asking for the demonstration of power of your spirit right now, Lord. Hide the preacher and everything else that's happened to this moment. May your spirit just reign in somebody's heart. I'm going to stop in my prayer and I'm going to invite anybody here that needs Christ this morning to wherever you are open your heart and receive the gift of life in Jesus Christ if that's you pray this prayer Lord Jesus I'm a sinner I ask you to cleanse me of all my sins I believe that you died and rose again from the grave and how my life needs your power and so Jesus come into my life and set up your throne in my life live your life through me while your heads are bowed, if you prayed that prayer this morning, anyone here on this ground floor, slip up your hand. I want to close this time in praying for you. I see that hand. Yes, I see that hand, ma'am. Yes, all over. Several, many. Thank you. Anyone else up in the back, in the balcony area? Is there anyone there this morning? Yes, I see those hands way up top, way in the back row. Praise God. Listen, if he hears your prayer, he'll answer your prayer. He's heard your prayer. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, and take up his cross and follow me. I will be his God. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. 
Thank you, Lord, for these that have prayed. Thank you, Lord, for, for the assurance of your Holy Spirit. And I pray now that your Spirit would just come over these individuals. And for all of us, Lord, if we walk with you today, give us a confidence in our prayer life. May we dig deep in these next seven weeks, Lord, to understand what this prayer really is about. Give you praise and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear additional messages or you're interested in finding out more about Neighborhood Church, please visit our website at threecrosses.org. That's the number three, crosses.org.